welcome to the latest in the Centre for Sociolegal Studies podcast, in which I'm going to be talking to Anna Salapatanis about ethics. This is the first of our podcasts in which we have begun a conversation about ethics, and we hope it will be the first of many. Um, I'm really delighted that Anna is joining us today. She's a research fellow at the Centre for Sociolegal Studies in Oxford, and she received her PhD in sociology from the Australian National University and a master's degree in Southeastern European Studies from the University of Athens. Anna's research interests include migration studies, citizenship as status, procedural justice, bureaucracy and identity. She has a strong background in cultural studies, diaspora, migration and European studies and has taught in the fields of anthropology, sociology, migration and globalisation studies. So that's a really impressive list of things, Anna. I wondered if you could tell our audience a little bit more about the sort of sociolegal research you do. Oh, goodness. Um, I have done sociolegal work in a couple of areas, but what I will focus on today is telling you about my most recent project, which Linda is well aware of as we're working on it together. Um, and it's actually quite a wonderful project because it's incredibly practical. So it's entitled Supporting Online Justice, but essentially we have responded to a call um, for responses to COVID-19. And as a few people might know, um, a lot of uh, court and tribunal hearings have moved online. But the issue with that is that there hasn't been a great deal of support for these people to move online. So there's kind of a lack of guidance. So what Linda and I and other members of our team have been doing is working on creating guidance that specifically helps lay users understand online hearings. But being the researchers that we are, this is extremely evidence-based. So around this project of, of developing these informational films, we've been doing a whole lot of research. Um, and as this is a methodology podcast, I think it's really important to mention the kind of methods that we have been using. Um, and this is it. So essentially, we went to an initial period of consultation. So while not traditional interviews, we were talking with a lot of professional users and users from other parts of the justice system. We then circulated an initial survey, and this was an online survey. Um, and using this, we tried to establish people's experiences of online hearings so that we could then use that to, con to inform the films that we were developing. And then finally, and perhaps the most challenging part of this research for us, has been a series of um, different focus groups. So essentially with these focus groups, we were trying to capture two groups of people, or the two very broad groups of people. So you have the professional users of the justice system, so lawyers, judges, people who work within Her Majesty's Court and Tribunal Service. But more importantly for us, or potentially equally importantly, it's the lay users, because they were very much the people that we were wanting um, to support. And just, you know, because we are talking about research ethics, and I will go on to explain how complicated ethics is and that it's way more than the ethic, ethical approval process that people go through, but I think it may be interesting for you to know that this particular project was subject to three research ethics applications. One that went to the judicial office because we needed to get approval to work with judges. Um, and the other two went to the university's central research ethics committee. One that was more concerned with the survey and another which looked 
um, at conducting the focus groups. Um, but as I'll explain a bit more later, research ethics is so much more than those approval processes. But that just gives you a good idea to begin with. Thanks, Anna. That's a really great introduction. And Anna, you're a specialist in ethics. And for people who don't know you and haven't met you, I ought to inform them that you're pretty much the go-to person at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies when somebody has an ethical dilemma. And I know you spend a lot of time with um, our early career researchers going through ethical approval for them. I wonder if you could tell us what first interested you about the topic of ethics. Um, well, my interest in ethics essentially originated from when it all went wrong. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm quite a diligent person, and at, when I did my research ethics for my PhD, um, I went to all the courses that you had to do around research ethics, and essentially they were just telling you how to fill in the forms. This is what is required. This is the guidance. Fill in this document and submit it. Um, and I felt very ill-prepared. When I got into the field, um, I encountered some difficulties uh, which, which I wasn't prepared for, which, which, you know, I wasn't even prepared for the messiness of social research. And through my time in, in understanding that experience I have, and then later on in my work around, you know, research and development and helping other researchers as well as through my teaching, I have gotten better at articulating what went wrong and the sort of things that people need to keep in mind. Um, and also a little bit further to that, one of my, I suppose it's something that's quite boring for other people, but something that fascinates me is bureaucracy. So a lot of my um, PhD research involved considering, you know, looking at the impact of bureaucracy on citizenship and migration. And currently research ethics is very much a bureaucratic process um, but what you have to realise is bureaucracies are never neutral. They collect certain forms of information. They categorise people in particular ways. Um, they decide what, what is important information and what isn't. And, you know, we have really, you know, the research community more generally has really failed to consider what these kind of bureaucratic ethics approval processes, the impact that these processes have on the research itself. And it's it's... There's a lot of cases where it has been, um, if not a barrier to research, but something that um, certainly doesn't help it. But, yeah, so my interest comes out of those two kind of areas, my specific experience, but also relates to some of my research interests. Okay, so we're going to come back to bureaucracy in a minute, <laughs> which I know you'll be very pleased to hear. But just for people who are starting in the field, who may not have done any field work yet, I wonder if you could give us some examples of the sort of ethical problems that have arisen in your own research or the research of other people that you've helped with. So, and this will kind of relate to my complaints around bureaucracy later, but... Um, I'll give you the example of the kind of major research ethics issue that I came up with in my research. So I did over 50 interviews with um, multiple migration, citizenship and migration status holders across Australia and Greece. Um, and being the kind of diligent student that I was, I prepared my ethics documentation. So I had my information sheets, I had this research um, consent form where everyone required a signature. And I was, um, I, you know, I brought these into the field 
uh, getting ready for people to sign. But what I hadn't expected, and this was especially in the Greek case, is the just the dislike, the uncomfortableness, the the issue that people had with signing this ethics documentation. And there's and these are things that I hadn't taken into account because when you're doing research training, uh, research ethics training, they don't explain to you that you need to tailor your um, informed consent processes around the particular participants. So I hadn't taken into account that in this particular cultural setting, um, signatures are something that's involved in that that you you sign things when you have obligations. When you're having a conversation with someone, you don't sign things. And there's also a lack of trust in different legal systems and just just in these kind of institutions. So by sitting someone down, even in the friendliest way and trying to explain to them what the research was about, the second you brought out that piece of paper, you, you people, you could see they started to feel uncomfortable. Um, and one particular uh, participant used uh, a particularly choice phrase that's, that's a bit rude, but um, it's, it's reasonably commonly used in Greece. And please excuse me, but it's um, your dick and your signature. Be careful where you put them. And that was kind of, it's it's not a very nice thing to say, but that was kind of uh, the thing that hit at home for me, this idea that I wasn't helping my participants by getting them to sign this form. I was putting them off the research. Up until that point, they were very willing to communicate with me. So I was very lucky because I had the option of, and, you know, this is quite a few years ago, but because I was aware that I potentially needed to do things online, I had thought about oral consent scripts. So essentially what I did in that context is move to a more oral consent type model, which was fine. But I just wish for myself that I'd had that preparation in advance, that that someone had made it clearer to me that I need to think about the kind of cultural and situational aspects of my participants instead of pushing this kind of modern bureaucratic line of having to get everyone to sign a piece of paper. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that kind of answers that question. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think exposing the underbelly of research is really one of the key aims of this podcast series so that we can prepare people for all the things that go wrong and in a way normalise um, that in the research process. So thanks so much for that. Um, Anna, you've already acknowledged that discussion about ethics often focuses on the hurdles that researchers need to overcome to gain ethical approval from a university ethics committee. Um, now, you've already said that that frustrates you. I'm going to give you full reign now to, to, to tell us why bureaucracy around ethics is so frustrating to you. Um, there, there's, a, there's a number of reasons. And I think... Um, I've been thinking this about this a lot lately. And one thing that we fail to consider is who is research ethics for? And I think if you were designing a research ethics procedure for different people, it would be designed quite differently if you had different perspectives in mind. Um, and unfortunately, and part of this has got to do with the kind of biomedical nature of ethics processes, it's got to do with kind of institutional and funder concerns around um, risks potentially that particular research holds. Um, I do think that a lot of these processes are designed with institutions and funders in mind, and even less so 
um, the participants and, of course, the researchers themselves. Because, um, and let's not forget, these processes, or for me, the, the priority around these processes should be, well, I suppose it's a conflicting priority, but for me, in my own research, it's very much towards my participants. But with my students, I'm also very concerned with their kind of, um, you know, it has to be ethical for them as well, their safety. And all this is tied into research um, ethics more generally. Um, and I do feel, so let me just say, <laughs> I'm not entirely critical. Like I'm not critical about every aspects, every aspect of um, the kind of getting research ethics approval. I think especially for junior researchers, it's it's a bit of an important step. It allows you to step back and plan your research, particularly uh, potentially a little bit more carefully than you would would have without that structure. But there's an irony in all, irony in all this as well, that research ethics approval, bizarrely enough, in many ways can be a barrier to actual ethical research. Um, and there's potentially a number of reasons why that's the case. One, I've kind of already mentioned, um, a key principle around research ethics is informed consent. Um, and these issues around having to get written consent, especially uh, in contexts where that's inappropriate, um, can actually undermine ethics. Um, so you have this kind of uh, both signature fetishism, this need to kind of push it, but also when you're presenting people with a lot of information, it's com it's almost disenfranchised consent. Like it's a lot of these people, when you're giving them a very densely packed piece of text for them to agree to, you know, like most of us, you know, we look at the terms and conditions, we just click accept. If we're talking about ethical practice, surely a more ethical practice would be more informal ways of providing people with information so that they can then consent. So this idea that just because people are given a piece of paper with all the details on it, that they are informed. Um, and, and this is something that happens. Often, you know, we're very aware of what we want to do with our research, but often our participants misunderstand. And, you know, we can very much try our best, but we often come from very different backgrounds and communicating that is different. So we have to be very cautious, not only of the language that we use, but the kind of tools we use to inform people and then gain their consent. Um, another bugbear of mine, and you talk to kind of first year PhD students, maybe 18 months in, and they're like, oh, I'm going really well. I've done my research ethics. And this, and I know, you know, they're talking about the, the institutional aspects of their research ethics, the, this kind of approval process. But ethics is never done. Ethics is an ongoing process of negotiation. Ethics even continues post-publication. And I think that our current system of approval completely, it doesn't explain this. You know, ethics <laughs> never stops. It's ongoing. Um, and not all ethical dilemmas are big. You know, in conducting research, and this is especially quant uh, people who do quantitative research who may be working on large and existing data sets. Yes, there may be kind of privacy and other ethical implications, but for quality, for qualitative researchers who kind of interact at the coalface, it's it's a very different context. You know, um, there are ongoing ethical issues with research. 
um, and kind of thinking about it, there's one final bugbear I could go on. <laughs> I could go on for ages. And that's that a lot of these processes become barriers to research, you know, um, and with this idea of ongoing consent, you know, if you get someone's consent at the outset with a signature, how do you then, you know, you may they may be involved in a long, longitudinal process. They may also want to opt out later on when they understand something further down the line. You know, with our participants, we need to be continually negotiating consent. Just, you know, and there has been a lot of discussion recently around sexual encounters. Just because you say yes at the beginning doesn't mean that you can't withdraw your consent at any point in time. And we should think about similar things with our research participants. Just because they consent at the beginning doesn't mean that we have their consent the whole way through. And some of the foundational ideas is also that they can withdraw their consent. They can withdraw their participation. So, you know, these processes are problematic for that reason. But what I, was, I wasn't trying to go there with this final point I'm making. What I am trying to say, apparently not very clearly, is there are certain types of research, like observational research, that gaining consent is really difficult, um, especially gaining consent prior. And not only that, we also need to be aware of the disruption that gaining consent can have in these interactions. So I think, you know, and a lot of people talk about how research ethics approval processes can become barriers to research. And, you know, I think they are necessary in many fields, but sometimes we need to think about how they work with particular research methodologies. But that's an enormous argument, and I won't get into much detail, so I'll just leave that point there. Yeah, as you know, Anna, we've, we've discussed this on several occasions and I'm very much a, a fan of your perspective because I think that ethics application is just such a tiny part of what we mean by ethics. It has to be a reflexive and ongoing practice, as, as you suggest. And it's interesting, sometimes students come to me and say that there's a problem with the ethics form because they've looked at the ethical guidance or code and they're not quite sure how to apply it in their situation. And the first question I always ask them is, does it feel bad? You know, when you're thinking about doing a procedure or getting gaining consent in that way, does that feel right to you? Because it's also got to be about your own personal ethics, I think. And, um, you know, I, it, perhaps it's easier for me. I'm a senior member of staff, but I, I will take umbrage at some of the things the ethics committee has imposed on me in the past and not argue with them but put another point of view and say you know that I think there are more things that need to be considered um something else I think that is interesting is on the ethics approval form in Oxford you tick a box to say whether you actually sign up to any of the ethical codes, the major ethical codes. And the Socio-Legal Studies Association is one of those. Um, but interestingly, people often tick more than one code. And I also ask them, have you read both these codes? And have you worked out whether they actually agree with each other? Because um, the SLSA code has been rewritten as a result of ethical dilemmas a few times and it started off being very similar to the social policy association it's moved away from that because slsa has decided that it wants to approach some issues in a different way so it, it just makes the point there isn't one code of ethics either you know we sometimes have to think of sort of multiple aspects of um, an ethical dilemma um but 
let me just ask you another question about ethical problems that arise in the field, because that's something you mentioned um, in one of your opening comments. Um, I mean, how do you think people should react when things happen in the field that they hadn't anticipated? What, what advice would you give to them? That's a really good question. Essentially, I think for most people, like with any problem, you need to, as best as possible, take a step back and think, what is, what is the problem? How has this come about? What has happened? Who is the injured party? How do I feel about this? And it very much depends on the problem, but you need to kind of, once you identify something's gone wrong, or even once you have the feeling that something does not sit right with you, we, do, we don't need to wait for things to become problems before we kind of consider them um, and potentially want to act on them. Um, so like, like many problems, look at what the problem is. Take a step back. You know, there's there's some wonderful people. I know at the centre, I'm sure, in your research departments where everyone is based, seek guidance um, from more senior researchers. Um, there is a fair bit of information online when you want to talk through people, things, you know, often the problems you are facing are things that other people have faced. Um, and, yeah, try and solve it that way. It's, it is difficult without kind of a specific problem in mind. Um, but one thing I would like to emphasise is the need to report. And by report, you know, we do have obligations under research approval processes to report any issues. But beyond that, you know, research ethics is a part of research process. So we need to publish. We need to make the community aware of the issues that we're having. And just as you were saying, uh, Linda, with the SLSA's um document that if we don't discuss these issues with wider audiences we're not equipping other people to deal or equipping them better to deal with very similar situations so yeah identify the problem work towards a solution and most importantly you know let's talk about it talking is so important and you know you may be saving someone else a, a lot of grief down the line and if anyone who is listening has experienced an ethical problem and would like to share it and open up a discussion about it, just to remind our listeners that the methodological musings section of our podcast, um, our blog, is available for that um, in Frontiers for Socio-Legal Studies. So do get in touch with the editors if you've got 750 words um, in your head about an ethical dilemma and the problems that it caused you. Um, but Anna, one thing we ask all our interviewees is what advice about ethics or the, the subject of the podcast that they're involved with would, would they give to their younger self? Could I ask you that question about ethics? That, that is a good question. I I just wish I was better equipped. Um, and I teach the ethics module um, into the research methods course at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies, and I try my best to um, equip our students to a bit more. And not, I'm not talking about the research ethics approval process, but, of course, you do have to deal with that. It's getting them to think of research ethics more, more holistically. Um, I try and prepare them for the messiness of research. So this is something, especially people doing qualitative research, they're often shocked by it can be very challenging. You are having these interactions and you're changed by them and, and your participants are changed by them. Um, so what I would have told myself and what I tell my students is to kind of enable them to think about their participants and the best ways that they can 
make the research ethical for them. So informed consent. Who who are you talking to? You know, what what are their lives like? What are the most meaningful ways to tell them about your research and seek consent from them? But also, and I think this is something that often gets forgotten a little bit, it's about researcher safety as well. So we need to think about things like vicarious trauma. You know, there are people who are working on uh, violence, sexual violence, other societal issues where some of the commentary can be incredibly challenging to engage with. So, and not only that, even physical safety, you know, researchers shouldn't be going into a private home, you know, managing, and they simply want access, but often these considerations aren't taken into account. So, um, goodness, it's it's recognising the complexities of social research uh, and trying to give people a better framework to understand that ethics goes so far beyond just this approval process but also recognising that what is on the approval process is only a very, very small number of questions, of ethical questions that you will encounter during your research. So now on to my favourite bit of the podcast. Uh, We always ask people who take part to recommend three texts for people interested in ethics. I wondered if you could walk us through your three choices, Anna. Well, I I have a bit of an eclectic mix, and I've done this a bit on purpose. And that is, so the first text that I have chosen is Mark Israel's Research Ethics and Integrity in Social Legal Research and, sorry, Sociolegal Studies and Legal Research, um, which I really like because it's probably the best general introduction that I've seen. If you want to read about ethics, research ethics and social legal studies in about 20 pages, this is it. And it provides a nice background to it, introduces the subject It discusses the issues around ethics in legal research and sociolegal research and the fact that not a lot has been made of it. It then problematizes a little bit um, the ethics approval processes and um, also provides some quite basic ways to kind of think about ethical dilemmas. So that's that's great. For anyone who wants kind of a, a good general introduction that's quite concise, I really suggest you go there. Um, so for my second text is, well, it's another Mark Israel text. So it's written by L.L. Wynne and Mark Israel, and it's called The Fetishes of Consent, Signatures, Paper and Writing in Research Ethics Review. And I'm sure Linda can understand why why I like it. Um, And this paper actually cites some of my um, PhD research, but it is really interesting. It challenges those research ethics approval processes and how they have become barriers to research. So if you are concerned with or if you want a kind of academic paper to that kind of challenges these processes and why, and there's a lot of information in this paper that I think is really, really useful. And it also, um, it involves a survey that went out to a lot of ethnographers and ethnography is a particular research method that struggles with research ethics approval processes because it is long-term, because it's often observational. There's a lot of reasons why that is the case. But, um, yeah, this this is just a really good paper if you want to see a really well-structured academic argument, evidence-based around the ethics, the issues of ethics approval. Um, and my final text is very left field. So it's something that I read after I completed 
uh, my PhD research, but it's something that has always stayed with me and it's something that I set for my students because for me it really captures both the messiness of social research as well as the fact that ethical dilemmas are ongoing and they <laughs> continue well past publication. So it's not a socio-legal text. It's um, the second edition of Annette LaRose, Unequal Childhood, Unequal Childhoods. And I've been very sneaky. There's actually kind of two chapters here that I would suggest. The first is chapter 14, which is reflected, reflections on longitudinal ethnography and the family's reactions to unequal childhoods, as well as the Appendix A, which is methodology and enduring dilemmas in fieldwork. And both of these provide this wonderfully frank analysis of just how challenging her study was. Um, but also the ongoing dilemmas. You know, she talks about the issues of viewing families in their homes and, and how she reacted when she, she wasn't comfortable with what was happening. She talks about the ethical dilemmas of returning to her participants with the book and their reactions to it, some of which were were very uncomfortable for her, but she's put that in. It For me, it's potentially the best example that really captures the difficult decisions and the difficult ethical negotiations that we go through as qualitative social researchers. So it's not really going to inform you about research ethics directly, but it will illustrate these complexities and the, the this ongoing negotiation. And I just... I really adore her frankness. She's she's quite an amazing woman to be to be putting this to paper, and I think it's really important, especially for for junior researchers, to see to better understand that this this is tricky. This this is this can be quite um, emotional and this is messy, but it's very worthwhile. Um, yeah, I think that's it. They're my well three slash four texts. That's great, Anna. Thank you so much. And that's given us so much food for thought. Um, so listeners do look out for future ethics podcasts on specific ethical dilemmas um, in this series. But for now, a very big thank you to Anna for giving up time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. It's been such an interesting session. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Please visit frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk to find a list of the publications that have been referred to in this podcast and a reference to a piece of work from our expert that you might also want to read. You can also find other podcasts and reading lists on that page. We hope that you've enjoyed this interview and that you'll listen to the other podcasts in our series. This is an ongoing project, so if you have an idea for a new podcast, just get in touch. Thank you.